Hello, everybody. Welcome to Health Chatter, our episode on infectious disease. This is going to be an interesting show, as you all can imagine. We've got a wonderful crew with us, as always, my my great colleague, Clarence Jones, um, sits in St. Louis right now, and hopefully we'll be able to get him on. Otherwise, we'll get his questions through through our chat. Um, Erin Collins is is with us in her new abode, I can tell. And she's one of our great researchers, along with Maddie Levine the Wolf, who's in um, Chicago, and Matthew Campbell, our production king, is um, is in Minneapolis, as am I. But our great guest is um, Dr. Rich Danilla. Rich and I go back quite a quite a ways, um, and. We, we, we have one thing recently in common that we both retired from the Department of Health, but we have a little bit of history, both of us, in the, uh, in the public health arena. Rich was the, um, the assistant uh, epidemiologist, state deputy epidemiologist for how many years, Rich? 30 some odd years? Well, I started the Minnesota Department of Health 37 years ago, and I've been the, I was the deputy epidemiologist or the acting state epidemiologist since oh, for about 25 years. Wow, wow. And I, I will tell you, there is, um, you know, I've, I have a, a lot of colleagues in a variety of different subject arenas, but I can, I can tell you this, that um, when we're talking about epidemiology and uh, infectious diseases specifically, there's no better. There really is no better than than Rich, and we we've been uh, very very lucky to have him in uh, in the state of Minnesota all these years. And one way or the other, he still stays connected with all the different infectious diseases that we are. I get I get emails from him on a daily basis with updated literature. And again, second to none. So thank you, Rich, for being with us. It's it's a pleasure to have you on 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 health chatter. Um, we, we purposely, Clarence and I purposely um, decided that the, the subject for this particular one would be infectious diseases as opposed to just COVID. As you can imagine, we could have show upon show upon show on, on COVID. But um, we realized that, you know what, we as human beings don't suffer just from from COVID and haven't um, historically well these years. Um, before we get get started, I can recommend a um, a book and maybe Rich, you can you can comment on on this too for our audience. It's called Epidemics and uh, Society um, by Frank Snowden. S N O W D E N. If you really want to get a um, a really good historical perspective on epidemics, plagues, pandemics. Over time, it's an excellent, excellent book. And actually, it's it's quite interesting, even if you aren't a um, a formal epidemiologist. So off we go into the infectious um, disease world. Um, some we have talking points on uh, various subjects here. And let me ask you, Rich, 
Um, and we maybe we can we can test you. You know, uh, what are the most common infectious diseases that 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 we deal with? Let's put COVID aside for a second, because obviously that's very common right now. But over the years, what's the what's been or has been the most common infectious diseases as we as humans have had to deal with? You know, well, we all experience infections, um, you know, all the time, particularly in winter months uh, in the northern hemisphere, uh, mostly caused by viruses. So, you know, we all get the common cold sometimes two or three times uh, in the winter. That's, um, you know, most common. That's not something we keep statistics on because it's just a common thing that happens and it's relatively mild. Uh, in general, I think the other thing that people think about that's very common is influenza. And that varies by year, depending on the strain of influenza uh, and who it's affecting and depending on, you know, whether it's been seen in the past. It also depends whether you've been vaccinated. But but in general, you know, most people suffer an attack of influenza, if not every year, every other year, it, um, uh, particularly, uh, again, relating whether or not they've been vaccinated and how, how well the vaccine matches the strain. And that's a little more, you know, obviously influenza is a little more severe than the common cold. And we all can recall, you know, being, you know, sometimes prostrate in bed uh, for a couple of days, knocked out because of the flu. Um, you know, and then we think of other diseases um, that are spread not through the respiratory route, but maybe through um, uh, ingestion uh, and, you know, and, a, and very common um foodborne pathogen is norovirus that, you know, that causes a very extreme, severe vomiting and diarrhea. And some people, sometimes people say it's the worst disease they ever had in their whole life. They felt they're going to die, but it only lasts for 24 hours and then they feel fine. And norovirus is spread through um, feces, through the stool. So particularly if, if food handlers uh, are, uh, you know, vomiting or are defecating and, and don't wash their hands um, uh, properly, um, they can contaminate food that's not cooked, sandwiches, cold items. Um, so that's quite common. And that's our most common um, outbreak in the Minnesota Department of Health is a norovirus outbreak. Yeah. And again, that also can, can change. Some years are worse than others. Um, but it's a common travel occurrence yeah so if you do travel you know you can pick up other not not viruses but bacteria uh that are present uh in in the environment or present uh in contaminated uh fruits and vegetables and you get traveler's diarrhea another very common occurrence particularly if you're traveling but you might we might get to this but you know the thing about um infections is that you know it's a small world and it's really changed over the course of mm -hmm. my uh my career. And so, uh, you know, you might travel to somewhere where we tell you don't eat raw fruits and vegetables, but that very same raw fruit and vegetable is on your grocery shelf. You know, it was picked two or three days ago in some remote part of the world and now, yeah. now in your grocery store. So those are the general common diseases, most common diseases we think of. So, um, you know, it, it's, it's interesting, at least from, from my perspective, when, infectious diseases really becomes kind of an important subject matter. And we'll get to this, you know, as it relates 
to COVID, you know, people get kind of blitzed out. But, you know, we've had infectious diseases over the years. But let, let's back up a little bit, you know, for our listeners. Define for us what is, in this case, epidemiology. So, yeah, epidemiology is, is the study of disease and health uh, status in the population. So a, a physician generally is one-to-one, you know, one the doctor to you, the patient. An epidemiologist, the patient is the population. Groups of people, uh, the you know, the entire state, the entire county, maybe the entire workforce of a, of a plant, it's, it's groups of people. And, and looking at how disease uh, occurs in that group of people. Yeah. And, and the purpose is to establish a cause or risk factor so we can then modify those to reduce the risk. And, you know, I've, I've come to realize that epidemiology is a little bit of a balancing game be- between, on one side, how to deal with it um, medically and public health-wise for health professionals, but then on the other hand, how to communicate effectively with the public about what is happening. And certainly we found that, um, you know, last couple of years for, for sure. Let me, so, okay, we talk about infectious diseases, we talk about plagues, epidemics, the whole, the whole nine yards. Um, you know, it's interesting based on, you know, some some history that I've I've read, some of the um, historical plagues and, and epidemics, people back then didn't even probably didn't even know what the word vaccine meant. Okay, and, and the mere fact that when you really think about it, like today, when we've been dealing with COVID, how quickly, truly, how quickly we were able to come up with a vaccination for it is just in comparison to what was back whoa, these years is is somewhat of of a uh, of a miracle, really, um, in many ways. Um, talk to me about vaccines. Yeah, I mean, a good story, I think, is, you know, um, maybe our grandparents, if they're still alive, uh, is to talk to them about what they remember about polio in the 1940s and 1950s. Yeah. And that was just like, a dreaded disease, and of course, we you know we know that um, President Roosevelt, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, um, you know, suffered from polio, and that's why he was in a you know pretty much in a wheelchair. Um, you know, and there were uh, outbreaks of polio in the '40s and '50s, and it was extremely, I mean, it was a very frightening, scary time, and 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 uh, you know, swimming pools would be closed, swimming areas would be closed, even our own Minnesota State Fair. Uh, did not operate one year be, because of polio. And, um, you know, then um, two different, well, you know, two different schools of research, you know, ultimately um, initially was the uh, Salk vaccine, which was, a, you know, an inactivated vaccine that uh, you received by a shot. Uh, there was a large clinical trial, uh, including in Minnesota, partly, um, and that proved it to be effective. And, you know, there was an announcement made that it was proved to be an effective vaccine. And, you know, people wept. People went to church and, you know, synagogue and 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 thanked God because it was a miracle. Uh, and then, of course, later we got the um, oral polio vaccine developed by Dr. Sabin. And I remember, given my age, I'm 67, I remember lining up in uh, second grade for a little uh, mm-hmm. 
uh, cherry flavored. Yes. Yeah. It's schools. It's schools. And that was a oral polio vaccine. Again, that was a, you know, it was just amazing. And, and, you know, that really began a, a, a revolution in, in um, better vaccines. We got the measles vaccine, mumps vaccine, you know, and I, I remember uh, having the measles. Uh, I was old enough to remember having the measles. And I, I can't remember, I might've been five or six. And I just remember feeling like I was burning up with fever. Um, uh, and then we had chicken, you know, and then later on, you know, chicken pox vaccine, and other vaccines. So, you know, these were all in, at the time when they were developed, were, were basically considered to be miracles and people just, you know, bless the scientists and the physicians. And to have the sort of the, the political discourse now about COVID vaccine is sort of mind boggling to somebody like you and me stand that know history. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, it's interesting too. Um, you know, I, I was, you know, on the faculty in maternal and child health and I remember having discussions about vaccinations and you could see the tide changing. You really could, even though we, um, who have been around the block, uh, for a while, um, thought of these was part of the population that thought of these various vaccinations as um, miraculous. I saw the tide changing when um, it got to be when certain diseases were not seen as often. And so new parents, for instance, you know, when they think about vaccinating their kids, you know, why should I vaccinate my kid? I've never even seen mumps. I don't even know what the heck mumps is, or I have not seen smallpox is another is another illustration. And so consequently, we, we see um, populations becoming more reticent to getting vaccines because they haven't seen the disease. There hasn't been talk about it. And, and that really lends itself to the success of the vaccine. <laughs> As opposed to, yeah, not I mean, it. you know, it's the it's the analogy of the uh, the village green and grazing on the village green. Well, you know, and you probably heard that, you know, I can graze my sheep on the village green because I'm they're only eating a little bit of grass. But if everybody did that, there would be no grass left. And so, you know, well, there is no, you know, I don't have to worry about that disease because it really doesn't exist anymore. Well, it doesn't exist anymore because everybody's been vaccinated. If you don't vaccinate it. And then your your colleague or your friend doesn't vaccinate, they're going to come back. And yeah, it, it it people it's it's a conundrum. I mean, the the overwhelming, astounding success of most vaccines have mean that we see very little disease. Uh, and and so then if there's a let up, as we've seen, for example, uh, in Minnesota a few years ago in our Somali community, who had very high levels of vaccination, except for the MMR, the measles, mumps, rubella, because they've been given some misinformation about uh, the measles vaccine and we had a, a measles outbreak. Um, you know, and then and bringing it over to the chronic disease side, you know, we, uh, for uh, HPV, human papillomavirus, which causes, a, you know, which causes a cancer, you know, again, uh, going back to the 60s where, where people were learning about cancer and people were praying, if we only had a vaccine for cancer. Well, we do, we have the HPV vaccine, but because it's transmitted sexually, you know, same people don't want their, young uh, adolescent uh, female or even male, you know, vaccinated for it. Oh, well, because they're not going to get it. Well, again, it's a mistake. You know, I think um, what comes to the forefront um, 
again, over the years is the concept of, of safety, the concept that people have access to quick information much quicker than, than we ever experienced. And so consequently, they look up these vaccines real quickly and you know it's real easy for them to, to look at um, side effects, it's, et cetera. But by and large, uh, these vaccines have been incredibly successful. So Rich, um, how did you get involved in, 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 in epidemiology, infectious diseases? What, you know, I. Sure. Well, I, I, you know, I was a biology major in, in college. I, I always enjoyed biology. You know, I had a microscope as a kid and so forth. And after I graduated from college, I actually got a job in a, in a hospital laboratory for two years, but I wasn't, you know, I didn't have any specialty degree, but I, but I, it was a small hospital. I did everything I did. I drew blood. I worked as an autopsy assistant. You know, I did microbiology, and and then I, I realized, well, I need to go back and, and get a, a degree. And I took a couple of night classes at a local college, and one was in immunology, one was in epidemiology. And I thought epidemiology was really interesting at the time. Hepatitis B uh, virus was uh, had been discovered, and there was ways to test for it, and we were seeing transmission in hospitals of hepatitis B. And, that was really interesting. So I went to get a master's degree in public health and epidemiology. And I, I really got interested in infectious diseases. And at the time, people said to me, infectious diseases? What are you studying that for? Those, those are all gone. There's, there's no future in that. And that was like, you know, 1979 to 81. And, and then I remember in 1982, I was sitting in my room. And I read this report out of um, Los Angeles of some, um, um, at the time, there were homosexual men. You know, men who have sex with men who had this uh, unusual pneumocystis carinii pneumonia and then later Kaposi's sarcoma. And that was, of course, the beginning of, of, of HIV. One of the beginning of our emerging infections, HIV, AIDS. Uh, and uh, so, you know, that, that just sort of started my career. Yeah. Were you at the health department then? Well, I, I started at the Minnesota Health Department in 1985 and in the local health department in 1983. And actually, I was hired. I was the first person hired by Dr. Mike Ostrom full time. He said, oh, you're going to work on, oh, daycare infections. Oh, and this new disease, too, AIDS. And at the time, <laughs> we had 37 AIDS cases in, um, when I started. And uh, the antibody test had just been come out. And, of course, that's when AIDS exploded uh, all over right. the world and all over the country and Ryan White and everything else. So my job just, just, just exploded very quickly. Yeah. I remember doing uh, some training with, uh, with Mike, just with, you know, just for physicians because they were, yeah, they at the time were, were, yeah. were, we did these road shows. Exactly. We did these road shows where myself, usually myself or Mike, a couple of physician. And we went to, I don't know, about a dozen cities across Minnesota. So I've actually been to more of Minnesota than most native Minnesotans have been. And we would do like an all day thing. We would do, we would uh, mm -hmm. do grand rounds with physicians and we would do a local community event lectures, uh, maybe a local college. Um, I would do the epidemiology physician would do the clinical aspect because it was a brand new disease. And exactly. in outstate Minnesota, um, uh, no one really had any idea. And at the time, initially, of course, you know, it was a hundred percent fatal because we didn't, we weren't able to look at the full spectrum of the infection and we didn't really have any treatment for several years. 
you know, at the time I was at the Minnesota Medical Association. And so, you know, that's when I linked with uh, with Mike and we were doing training through the Medical Association for docs at the time. So, you know, as long as we're on the HIV AIDS um, topic, there's a lot of history there. And um, maybe a reflection, you know, as an infectious disease on where it was, where it is today, and perhaps where you see it going tomorrow. Uh, for HIV AIDS? Yeah, for HIV AIDS. Yeah, well, HIV AIDS, of course, you know, originated uh, in, in, uh, in Africa, you know, and, and a zoonotic disease, much like COVID-19 really is a zoonotic, you know, originated in animals, spilled over to the human species. And really it's the change in, in, um, in the world, the behavior initially in Africa with uh, um, urbanization, uh, long distance uh, truck drivers spreading it. Uh, and then of course, um, getting into um, you know, other populations and spreading through behavior. There's a change in sexual behavior uh, uh, and then uh, uh, male to male sex uh, and then in injection drug users. Um, so it spread, you know, quite, you know, quite widely, ra rapidly and far. And then, you know, virtually every every country in the planet now has HIV AIDS. And for many years, we either had no treatment or very poor treatment. Um, and so a lot of um, there was a lot of community activism in the United States. Mm -hmm. And it did lead to the development of now, you know, highly act, uh, active antiretroviral therapy, which basically has turned HIV AIDS from a you know, infectious disease for which there was no cure and for which the treatments were either very uh, inadequate, poor, or, um, you know, very hard to basically a, a manageable, treatable uh, infection. And of course, now we even have uh, where uh, you could be uh, pre-exposed, uh, treated to for prevention. Um, so that you know, this has been a remarkable turnaround in, in HIV AIDS uh, in the last, uh, you know, in the last 20 years. And so you've seen the evolution of this disease. But nevertheless, it still affects, uh, uh, you know, non-majority population, non-white populations in the United States. Um, uh, it, it affects them the hardest uh, and, uh, you know, they have the least access to information preventive measures and treatment. And, and that continues. And you know, of course, in Africa, it remains still a, uh, a very difficult situation. The world, including the United States, has poured a lot of money into Africa for treatment uh, for, for HIV AIDS. But it, with all of the various barriers in place, it, it's still going to, it's still a problem. And despite, you know, working on a vaccine now for 35 years for HIV AIDS, no vaccine has been, been developed. Yeah. No yeah. successful. Many vaccines have been tried and have failed. Um, it's just the nature of the the virus and uh, the way it, it attacks uh, the human immune system. So we're basic. So with HIV/AIDS, we're basically dealing with um, management. Management of it, and I think you know. To your point, I think we've gotten better at managing it for for patients, where they can hopefully assume a, a more normal uh, lifestyle going forward. Um, so, 
God, I remember, you know, the Minnesota AIDS Project back then, you know, public health initiatives that were done in, at the community level in order to get people more knowledgeable about this, about this disease. People were scared, for sure. I mean, I, I, I remember Mike and I talking about the fact that, no, you can't get AIDS by if somebody spits in a swimming pool. Okay, I mean these these types of, of of things were were common to hear about. Um, so we have a couple of questions here. Um, you you kind of alluded to the fact that you know infectious diseases have become more prominent just because of how how uh, how small the world is now. Um, is that a major consideration now? You know, it's in other words, how how we trans transportation across across the globe. Yeah, in my short career, it's hard to talk to young people because they don't quite understand. But when I started, you know, um, it, it's true that um, you know HIV/AIDS took took several years to reach the United States. But it's true that today, literally, someone could get on a plane. You know, and, and go to some remote part of the world and get exposed to an infection, either from an animal or from another human, and be back tomorrow. You know, in Minnesota, able and and it could be an individual single case, some rare disease, but it could be an infection such as SARS-CoV-2 causing you know COVID, and start spreading it. And we see that over and over and over again. I you know I'll give you example after example. You know, West Nile virus, for example you know, didn't exist in this hemisphere, in the Western Hemisphere. And uh, either a, a mosquito hitchhiked a ride on a jet from the Middle East uh, and landed at JFK Airport, or perhaps someone illegally imported a bird. And I've seen photos mm -hmm. of people that have had birds stuffed on their pants, in, in, you know, in a flight uh, coming from Africa or Europe. Uh, and it's established itself in uh, Queens, in New York City, you know, and then within a year, you know, it had already uh, traveled uh, by birds and mosquitoes south. And within two years, it was already down the Key West. And within wow. uh, three years, it had reached Minnesota. And, of course, now it's in all 48 contiguous lower uh, United States. And that's just one example. Uh, and then you might right. remember right. Zika virus, you know, which Zika, came out of right. nowhere right. and then, right. uh, you know, moved across the Pacific. Uh, islands eventually to South America and cause, you know, tremendous, uh, you know, congenital malformations. And that's all from, you know, those are like pests traveling, um, but people travel as well. Um, you know, example after example after example where that's true. And then, of course, uh, and alluded to this earlier about food, you know, where food travels and, um, you know, what you eat, uh, you know, I, you know, to whatever the meals you eat today, you know, could have come from 14 different countries, you know, right in one meal, <laughs> you know, the, the fruits, the vegetables, the ingredients. Uh, it, it is a, it again, it sounds so trite, and I found like I sound like an old timer, but it's really happened in my lifetime. Um, that that travel of people and pests and pets and products is rapid and all and moving all the time, and that's how yeah. infections have spread, you know, yeah, 100 years ago, 200 years ago, you know, it was by ships and it might take weeks or months to reach our shores. Now it can happen literally within it, within it's 24 hours. Hours. Right. hours. Yeah. 
So let me ask you something. So, and monkeypox is another example. I mean, right, just, right. You know that uh, you know came out of Africa uh, and then spread into uh, Europe, uh, primarily in men who have sex with men. And now they have traveled to Canada and to the United States, and now it's spreading here, primarily still yeah. among men who have sex with men uh, because of the close sexual contact. And it's been in, in associated with uh, sex venues like bathhouses and parties and so forth. So we have monkeypox here now in, the, in Minnesota. I know that there are some cases that have showed up. I don't know how many, but um, I know a few for sure. Um, so let me ask you something. Um, I guess maybe lessons learned, and then we're then I want to also start a little bit on talk on on COVID. Lessons learned as far as kind of um, communication process. What did we learn from the, for instance, from the HIV AIDS um, issue that was similar, maybe as far as communication is concerned, um, to what we're dealing with today, presently, like with COVID, or are all these public, all these infectious diseases have? different communication that we have to get out there. Yeah, I think, I mean, HIV AIDS taught us our first, I think, risk communication messages. And it really, uh, you know, there were several, like Peter Sandman is a well-known risk communicator about taking um, health information and putting it into a package for risk communication. So early on with HIV AIDS, AIDS, there were, you know, there was reluctance because, you know, it was being spread Highest risk was a receptive anal intercourse. No one wanted to talk about anal intercourse, you know, in the public. Yeah. I think we've gotten over that. Um, and then the, on the reverse side of that, you know, there was this tremendous fear about HIV AIDS. Like you mentioned, spitting in a, in, in a, in a pool or, you know, going to, or Ryan White going to school with another child with HIV AIDS. Yeah. So we learned about, you know, trying to, trying to present the facts as we know them. Um, you know, recognizing and, and saying that this is as what we know today, it might change tomorrow. And you know, it did change with COVID. Um, we'll get into that more. But, you know, initially it was we didn't want we wanted masks to be reserved for our healthcare workforce. They were in short supply. So we didn't advocate wearing a masks. And then and then they switched and, and people say, oh, see, you got you scientists don't know what you're talking about. Well, you know, my retort to that was. Yeah, you know, remember when all the time scientists said the earth was flat and then they changed their mind. You can't believe anything they say. Well, you know, <laughs> science is constantly changing. And so risk communications has to be nimble to go to change along with as what we know about the science. But also we must be um, transparent. And mm -hmm. you know, one of my latest thing, which just happened yesterday, I've, I've been kind of arguing with people about, you know, the, the reluctance to say that most of our cases, if not all of our cases of monkeypox are associated with men who have sex with men and or their, their household contacts. Now, it doesn't mean that it's only real. It's because they just happen to be exposed and it's skin-to-skin -skin contact. It is going to change, yeah. but, but you know, this is so, well, we can't stigmatize one group. Well, it's not stigmatization. You're, in fact, doing a disservice by not telling men who have sex with men, particularly those that might have been traveling or in these venues that they're at risk. Um, so yeah, again, uh, Peter Salmon just wrote about this yesterday saying that, you know, be transparent with the facts, tell the facts as you know them, let people know that things might change. Um, mm -hmm. you know, and, and people will accept that if you, if public health or 
health authorities try to hold back um, any information and then later say something different, you know, you just lose credibility. So those are yeah. some of the things I think we learned over the last few years, both with uh, starting with HIV AIDS and with other uh, infections as well. You know, um, you know, Matthew brings up a, a good point. There are certain infectious diseases that carry a stigma with them. Yeah, HIV certainly is is one of the monkeypox could as well. Whereas um, other infectious diseases like uh, like COVID, you know, affects everybody just <laughs> just almost. Yeah, but breathing. of course, remember yeah. COVID started off with a stigma a stigma against that's true. I mean, we we yeah. we certainly yeah. saw that. Yeah. Absolutely. The, yeah. the 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 incredible discrimination against anybody that w was from China or even looked Asian, uh, and we saw mm -hmm. it even here in Minnesota. One thing that, um, well, let's get into COVID. All right. Um, so, kind of, you know, you know, when I say past, past wasn't that long ago. Past, present, and 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 future. I think future should embrace. Um, the variants, like I know that there's a new variant that we're now looking at. What is it? B two seven five, I believe it is. Um, but anyway, give your perspective. I mean, you know, you and I have been involved with this. You know, certainly from the health department perspective. You know, since since day one. But your perspective again, kind of past again, two and a half, three years ago to present, and then where we're going. Well, I don't think anybody, including myself, could have predicted the path. I mean, I did say early on, this is going to be the pandemic of our lifetime. I yeah. mean, I could see that. But I we didn't, I don't think any of us realized what a long, yeah, it's only been a little over, you know, two and a half years. Um, but it really, what a slog this has been, um, particularly when we started uh, seeing, you know, vaccines being developed. But, you know, the virus has been out, out it's been beating us as humans constantly. You mentioned variants. You know, this virus just mutates quite a bit, and evolution takes over, and, and you know, um, new uh, variants or subvariants um, develop, have an evolutionary advantage, and that means they can spread. And the immunity that we either have because we've already had COVID or because we've been vaccinated, including with boosters, some of these um, you know viruses uh, have. The, evaded that immunity because they're basically, you know, new viruses or new, you can think of a variant just as a, you know, it's a change in the virus enough that it evades immunity. So we just can't seem to get over this pandemic. Uh, it just continues to go on and on and on. Now, uh, fortunately, some of the variants that we've had recently are not more virulent. They're not causing more disease. Mm -hmm. But where they're causing more infections and the more people that are infected, the more people are going to get sick, more people get up in the hospital. So we're kind of at a static status quo presently. Um, and it, it, it just we're having a hard time figuring a way out of this. You know, we can and we look at our neighbors in, in Europe and England, you know, right now in England, again, they're, they're having difficulties in their hospitals because they're having so many healthcare workers that are out sick. So they had staffing shortages. So it's not necessarily that they're an increase in the number of patients in the hospital at sort of level, but fewer staff to take care of them. And, and so it's been, it's hard, it's hard. And I, I can't make any prediction. I, I, I mean, I think, I mean, I, I hate to be put on the spot, but 
you know, we are becoming somewhat, I don't want to use immune, somewhat uh, accustomed to COVID. And, you know, complacent, you know, we say that, you know, every year we see, uh, you know, 40,000 to 60,000 deaths due to flu, depending on how bad the year is and how much of a mismatch is with the vaccine. We might see, we might get used to a, an additional on top of that 60,000, 80,000 deaths due to COVID every year. That's just going to be the way it is. I, I don't know. I mean, I, I don't find that comforting, but um, that, that could be. Of course, we are trying to work on, um, you know, getting a quicker, more rapid treatment into people to prevent them from getting into the ICU or death or dying. But it, it's really hard to know. And, and I, I do still spend my days every day on mm-hmm. COVID and, uh, and, and, uh, and I'm not an expert, but the, you know, even the experts are, are, are just scratching the head. We just don't, we can't predict necessarily where we're going to be. Even you know, six months from now, let a year, let alone two or three or year, four years from now. Right. You know, um, you know, it's almost as though COVID is like um, the disease that's on top of everybody's head. I get it, and I understand it. Um, it's getting a lot of attention, whether it be um, the good attention from the public health medical community. Uh, the communities themselves uh, versus, and I'll say the word versus, the um, the political side of the equation. I, you know, and maybe you, maybe you have a different take on this one, but I have never seen a um, a disease entity, in this case, an infectious disease, have as much um, political stuff, baggage connected to it, ever, like at ever the level that we're seeing it with, with COVID. Do you have a perspective on that one at all? Yeah, I've got a strong perspective on that. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, 1918, 1919, uh, HIV, uh, excuse me, influenza pandemic. Influenza, we all know about, yeah. you, know, you know, it was a huge pandemic. And so, you know, we uh, back in the early 2000s at the health department, you know, we started preparing. We realized we were overdue for an influenza pandemic. And if it was going to be, if it was going to be like 1918, this was really going to be bad. This was going to be overwhelm our healthcare like never had before. We were all kinds of models were out to predict. So we started preparing for it. Now you might remember in 2009, uh, we had the H1N1 pandemic, mm-hmm. but it turned out to not be a very virulent influenza. But right before that, though, we were preparing, and you know, I think back of those, and I think all the things we we thought about actually it came true. You know, we thought about well, we could. We could have like social distancing, and we came up with that term. We could have people be six feet apart. We could put like circles in the in the store. They could, and all that came true. And we could do things like, um, you know, we'll have to close. You know, we'll have to stop sports, and we'll have to stop sporting events. We'll have to stop, you know, maybe close theaters. We talked about that. Hands. All those things, yeah, and hand washing. <laughs> You know, one thing we did, we, we, we met with our Department of Education. We, at the time, we didn't conceive of distance learning. But what we thought was, well, we could have the school bus go out in the morning, drop off their lunches, and also drop off the homework for the day, and then pick it up at the end of the afternoon. Because we hadn't thought about, you know, distance learning as much, Zoom meetings and so forth. But all of that we thought about in all of our plans. And we, and we had meetings with public. We had ethics meetings about rationing care, and, uh, rationing vaccines. It never ever came up to us that the people wouldn't believe science. It we never it never conceived of right, it. Right. 
Right. And so, you know, when we started coming out with masks, you know, ma recommendations and mandates. Now, of course, we had a president at the time that, you know, only apparently only wore a mask once or twice and never was seen in public really wearing a mask. Um, it, you know, it just it just boggled us when we first started seeing this people not believing the science on masks. And we certainly understand we're epidemiologists, but we certainly understand the economic hardships that people endured by closing restaurants and other businesses. But we we knew the science would prevent, you know, would prevent a disease and prevent severe disease and death. Um, and again, um, we were totally unprepared for the political backlash. And, and then that eventually evolved into, you know, um, some public health officials actually, you know, receiving death threats and, um, you know, oh, being yeah. hailed by Absolutely. people. Never, that never entered our minds when we were planning for yeah. I've never an seen influenza it pandemic. Um, yep. I, I get it. You know, um, you know, the other thing that, that um, I was thinking about quite a bit, you know, obviously being in the cardiovascular arena is I kept saying, hold on, everybody. Yes, COVID is, is serious. And yes, it's going to get people sick. And yes, people will die. But guess what? We, we get sick and we die from other things as, as human beings. And I can almost guarantee you that stroke and heart disease is still going to be up there, you know, as far as mortality is is concerned. So, um, Maddie has a great question. How is it? You know, you know, we can come up with ideas and perspectives on this based on our our history in the public health arena. How is it that we can truly going forward? How is it that we can truly educate the public about prevention? And, um, and disease management, if you will, going forward. What methods should we be using that are more at our disposal than they have been in the past that perhaps could be more effective? Well, it depends on the infection, but we, we do have better methods to be more targeted. For example, if we're talking about a sexually transmitted disease, um, uh, for example, massive outbreaks of syphilis all across the country, particularly as it relates to um, drug use, um, uh, the, the, the use and, and, and sharing and sale of drugs for sex or vice versa. But we are trying to target. Those are very hard to reach populations, though. But, you know, trying to target them through uh, grassroots, you know, um, community uh, and maybe it's a community, uh, specifically like Native American community in Minnesota, trying to, you know, through their, the, um, through groups, uh, organizations, people, you know, of the same ilk, same color, mm -hmm. same group, same organization. So we, we are better at targeting um, and getting right down specifically uh, to the groups at risk for whatever the infection or uh, disease is. Um, that does, you know, require some resources and some nimbleness, though, that some, you know, health departments just don't have, you know, they, they just have more of the traditional, you know, one size fits all approach, which may not work. Yeah. You know, um, one thing, one question I've had, and you, you've obviously had more history involved with this, are infectious diseases in the aggregate, do they affect um certain populations more than others? 
Well, again, again, it depends on the infection. It depends on how it's transmitted. Right. Okay. You know, I mean, you know, we often talk about how infections uh, may, you know, um, and it's true with many infections, you know, uh, adversely affect non, non-majority or, or minority populations, persons of color, for example. But that's not true. It depends on the infection. You know, we actually see higher rates of some foodborne diseases among those that are in a higher economic status because they have access to foods and, uh, you know, like like raw chicken, for example, fresh raw chicken, which yeah. they're cutting in, you know, cutting in their kitchen and not washing their hands. So, you know, it depends on the infection and it depends on the pathogen and how it's transmitted. Uh, in general, of course, uh, most infections are are higher among non-white, in the United States, non-white populations, lower economic status, uh, uh, yeah, lower economic status, lower SES, um, because of their access uh, uh, to preventive measures, their access to care, um, yeah. and so forth. But not always true with all infections. Is it our... Um, for example, I just mentioned, for example, monkeypox, you know, the, again, I mentioned it earlier, the, the initial cases in the United States are men who have sex with men who are relatively affluent, who are able to travel to Europe or uh, uh, some of these other areas of the world where it first occurred and were participating in, in, um, in venues uh, where, you know, where th- this occurred. Um, you know, in, in, uh, in Montreal, it didn't stay in that affluent group. And in fact, it ended up in some uh, homeless shelters, men who have sex with men who were in homeless shelters. So let me ask you, what about geographic? Uh, do we see higher incidence of infectious diseases in uh, particular areas of the country more so than in others? Or is that also dependent upon the infection itself? Yeah, it's also dependent on the infection. Um, again, I think, uh, you know, syphilis, we were on the road to eradication about 10 years ago. And now that has tremendously rebounded, starting in, in men who have sex in men, but then spreading uh, among heterosexuals, including women, in, including now congenital syphilis cases. Um, so it, it's a kind of a, that's an interesting one because it's sort of a dual uh, thing. It's, it's occurring both in urban areas uh, related to, um, you know, a drug use, but also now occurring in rural population, very rural populations in Minnesota, specifically uh, among Native Americans in um, Northwestern and Western Minnesota. And now into in reservations in South Dakota, uh, Native American reservations. So kind of a dual thing geographically yeah. where you've got the syphilis occurring in hardcore urban areas, but also in very rural areas. So Matthew's got a great question here. So um, who should be our partners, truly our partners, when, you know, when we think about getting um, messages out there? regarding infectious disease we can you know we can certainly think about you know covid is which is really up front center in people's minds right now but who really should be our partners well stan you're probably more of a health educator than me but you know for cardiovascular disease you know you know it took years for you know um well smoking you know tobacco probably a lot of it's through economic incentives but you know who are your trusted partners for health messages your friends your family your local groups. And so I think we can tap more into that. And, you know, for example, I know that uh, in the uh, African-American community, you know, we, we used um, barbershops as a way to mm-hmm. promote um, 
STD yeah. messages. And we actually Claire into, was very involved with that. Yeah, we hooked into them for um, COVID as well. You know, people that you know, you, you know, maybe you don't really trust what you read on the Internet. And, you know, maybe you don't always trust government or doctors, but you trust your friends, your church, you know, your other social groups. Those are the really when we talk back about yeah. health education and messaging, those are the the, the uh, groups and venues and, and people we want to tap into with um, good messaging. So when we had our outbreak of measles in the Somali community, we actually worked with the Somali religious leaders, you know, who are very well respected to improve vaccination. And they were very good at that. Yeah. We've had outbreaks in the Amish community and we would meet with the elders they weren't against necessarily against vaccination per se. They just generally issued most modern medicine. But when we had an outbreak, met with the elders and, and they you know got people vaccinated. Um, you know, I think those are the most and I'm not a health educator, but you know, those are the most important um, groups and people and venues to reach and, and are the most successful. Again, there's some yeah. hard to reach groups, though, like, you know, homeless folks, very yeah. difficult to reach, um, you know, other hard groups, too. And then, of course, you know, sometimes you're fighting like adolescent behavior. When we had our vaping outbreak, that, that was real difficult, you know, to work uh, with uh, adolescents who were vaping an illicit substance. You know, from a health education standpoint, and this probably would get directly to your um, the answer to your question, Matthew, is the idea of um, trust. Trust is, is very important community-wise and also having a handle on human behavior of particular populations, which gets into values and customs, et cetera, that, that we really need to link our messaging. One thing, you know, we could go on and on, Rich, forever, but um, one thing that we've been really um, keyed into for Health Chatter is what should we do? Okay, whether it could be in the micro sense from, you know, just a small cadre of professionals in health chatter or more generally speaking, what is it that we should do um, and focus on in the infectious disease arena that'll make it easier when we have to deal with it again? Okay, with whatever it may be, you know, the next COVID or, or what have, what should we do? What should we be more proactive on? Well, I, I mean, I'll just take, you know, my experience working in government, which is, um, you know, funding systems in place to have these systems in place. So that at the drop of hat, when there is another pandemic, we are ready. And we had we had been making improvements, for example, in our electronic record systems. You know, we can't you, mm -hmm. you can't you be using uh, my colleague says, you know, you, you, you don't want you don't want your disease reporting disease surveillance to move by paper because disease doesn't move. Disease moves rapidly. Right. And so we, we have been investing in improving our electronic system so we can quickly detect, since I've already given examples how quickly infections have spread, we can quickly detect, oh, we have a brand new disease here in you know Minnesota or Rhode Island or wherever we are. And not only that, Rhode Island sees it, but Minnesota sees it and Oregon sees it. And so we make these connections quickly. You know, we are getting information put together quickly so then we can then also respond and also having 
you know, communication systems in place, uh, you know, alert systems for clinicians, for laboratories. Uh, we saw with the with COVID, um, we want a, a more robust laboratory response. Mm -hmm. and, and I think there was improvement made, you know, quickly multiple yeah. testings and rolled out to clinical labs. Um, all of those systems you want in place beforehand. And then we used to always say in preparedness for influenza, that's not the time when you want to be meeting for the first time your, uh, you know, your head of infection control at, right. at the hospital or your local medical examiner or, or your local emergency preparedness manager. You don't want to, you want to meet them and talk to them ahead of time and, and all those systems need to be in place too. Um, and and build, up your, build up your partnerships ahead of time. You know, being proactive, I really think if there is a truly a lesson learned from COVID, and we probably should have learned it from other infectious diseases as well, is adequate funding. We really should, there should be a reserve for these types of things because they will hit. They will hit. Yes, it's not going to necessarily hit tomorrow or the next day, but they will come. And when they come, we don't want to be caught off guard financially really financially, because these things are expensive to deal with, you know, from a, from a national perspective. We could go on and on about infectious diseases. Um, Rich, I hope I can reserve the right to, you know, to bring you back, um, you know, because <laughs> I hope I hope it won't be that um, the subject will be just monkeypox, for instance, okay? But yet there's, there's a lot, um, the history of infectious disease, um, certainly dictates that there's a lot of conversation about that. Uh, so I thank you. I really thank you. Um, first of all, I thank you for all the years that you put in at the Department of Health that were um, second to none. Um, I, I, I greatly appreciate your, your professionalism and um, being a great colleague. So thanks for being on Health Chatter. Sure. It's glad to come talk again. I've got lots of fun stories too, you know, infections. I, I know. Often fun. I know. <laughs> we end up in some very strange situations sometimes. I know. I know. So, Rich, thank you. Thank you. And okay. we'll be in touch. And that wraps it up for our health chatter, our, our show on infectious disease with Rich Danilla. And we'll see everybody or hear everybody next time. Thank you.